talking in this talk about how the Eucharist is the source and summit of the Christian life. And so our, our question really will be, why did Jesus institute the Eucharist? And uh, hopefully that will help us to come to appreciate it and love it more. That's our goal. So first I thought I'd talk a little about uh, why the seven sacraments, why the sacraments all together. And then we'll look at the Eucharist in particular. All right, so the center of history is God became man. Right? So God entered into human history 2,000 years ago in the Incarnation. And for 33 years, he walked around Galilee and Jerusalem in human nature. And he could be touched and encountered and People could have conversations with him and have lunch with him, but he also left this world, right? 2,000 years ago, and in his ascension. And so after he was crucified and died and rose, he stayed for 40 days, could be encountered, although he told Mary Magdalene not to cling to him. But then he left this world in his ascension, right? But he didn't want us to be orphans and be left without him, and so he instituted all of the sacraments, the seven sacraments, so that he could continue to touch us today in different ways, right? Most powerfully in the Eucharist, but in all the sacraments, we come into contact with Jesus Christ and his life. Right? So that's why he instituted seven sacraments. And we might ask, why seven? All right, so you might say that's a perfect number. But still, why these seven, and what do they do? And um, Thomas Aquinas uh, answered that question by looking at what are the needs of our natural life? And so our first need of our natural life, what's that? To be born, right? There's a sacrament for that. In our spiritual life, baptism. And then we need to grow to maturity, and there's a sacrament for that in our spiritual life. What's that? Confirmation, right? Sacrament of giving us spirit, bringing us to spiritual maturity and action. And then we need to be nourished, right? In order to grow. And that's the Eucharist, the sacrament of spiritual nourishment. A nourishment by which we are nourished on Jesus Christ himself. And so he gives us himself to eat. That's what he said in John 6. I am the bread of life, unless you eat of me. Right, so we can see the Eucharist has a special place. And then and we get sick in our natural life. In our spiritual life, we get sick also. Sin. And so there's a sacrament of healing, and that's penance. And in our natural life, we have to prepare for death. And there's a sacrament for serious illness, anointing of the sick. But we're also social beings, and so in our natural life, there's marriage, and Jesus simply elevated that to be a sacrament in the, in the church. Right? And then in our natural life, we need headship and governance, and so in our supernatural life, that's holy work. Right? So that's kind of the, the system of the seven sacraments. And you can see each one satisfies a need for our spiritual life, the way birth nourishment, maturity, 
healing, etc., satisfied our natural life. Okay. Now, from that though, you can't really see how the Eucharist is more important than all the other types because so whenever God does many things, there's always an order, right? Because God orders. So if there's seven sacraments, it makes sense there should be one that's the queen. Right? And that's what sacrament is that? Eucharist. You can't really see it from those different needs of our, our life. So maybe another way to explain why there's seven sacraments is that there's seven fundamental virtues. What are those seven fundamental? So in the, the theological virtues, faith, hope, and charity, and then there are four natural virtues, prudence, justice, courage, and temperance. And we can connect each sacrament with one of those virtues. So faith, the most kind of the foundation of the spiritual life that gets put together with baptism, the sacrament of faith. And of all of these, and which is corresponds to charity? The Eucharist. So the Eucharist is the sacrament of charity. And, and so that gives us, I think, a better approach to what the Eucharist is. So it's the sacrament of Christ's charity, and that's it. We can say it's a, the, the love proper of the bridegroom. Jesus is the bridegroom, and his church is the bride. So the Eucharist is the sacrament of the love of the bridegroom for us, his bride. Now what makes the Eucharist the queen of the sacraments? Let me throw that out as a question. What makes the Eucharist greater than any other sacrament? Because right? the, the other sacraments sanctify us, but only the Eucharist is Jesus Himself in person. Right? So in the in all the other in baptism, we can, we get the grace of Christ through the merits of Christ dying for us on the cross. But baptism isn't Jesus. Right? It makes us members of Jesus. But I think likewise confirmation. He gives us his grace so that we grow in the spiritual life and can be moved by the Spirit. But it's not Jesus himself. And we could go on and on, right? Same with penance. He gives us forgiveness, but through the priest, and we don't directly encounter Jesus himself, only indirectly, because Jesus is acting through the priest. Right? And we could go on then with holy orders as well. It enables someone to act in the person of Christ, but we don't directly encounter Christ himself. And likewise, all the sacraments work through the power of Christ's passion. That's how they sanctify us. He died for us, and he won for us the sanctification, the, the, the grace that comes to us in the sacraments. But none of the other sacraments contain Christ's passion. But the Eucharist does. Right? So the Eucharist is unique because among the seven sacraments, it alone is Jesus. And it alone actually makes present an event 2,000 years ago, his passion on Calvary. I told him to try to explain that a little more as we go along. So the Eucharist is unique because we don't just receive grace, 
but we receive the author of grace in the Eucharist. It's easy to say it's impossible to take it in. Let's pose the question. So why did why did Jesus institute the Eucharist? He wanted to institute because he was going to leave us. He was going to leave us first in his death. And then, yes, he knew he was going to rise, but he knew he was also going to leave this world in his ascension. So it makes sense. And it also makes sense when he institutes. So when did Jesus institute the Eucharist? The Last Supper, which is the night before, he was about to die. And he knew he was going to die the next day. So that's why he, so John, when he talks about the Last Supper, knowing that, um, having loved his disciples, he loved them to the end. So he, having loved his disciples who were with him in the world, he loved them to the end in the Last Supper. Wow. So he knew he was going to leave the next day and die. And so he wanted to give to his disciples, but not just, right, so that would be the 12 apostles, but not just to them, also to us. He wanted to give to us the very presence that he was about to lose. I know he was about to leave them, and he wanted to remain present with them. And when you think about it, it's the same with anybody who is on their deathbed. If you're on your deathbed, surrounded by your family, obviously, don't want to leave your loved ones. And if you could, you would want to leave something, right, that would supply your presence. But we can't. Right? What do we leave? A picture, heirlooms, a watch, etc. So Jesus, being God and man, could leave something better than we can leave. He could leave physically and yet manage to remain in an in way. And we might ask, well, why, why not just remain in a visible way? Right, so Jesus left in a visible way. He's remained in an in way. And why is that? And the, the answer is it's actually good for us for two important reasons. If he hadn't left with his visible presence, yeah, he would only have been in one place at a time. So Jesus, when he walked in Galilee, he was only in one place at a time, right? He was in Galilee, then he came to Judea, and he went to this town and that town and the other town. And therefore, if you wanted to see him, right, suppose you were saying, hey, it's near shore. You had to climb up a tree to get him when he happened to pass through Jericho. Jesus found a way to remain with us so that he could be in Kabul, and he could be in Moscow, and he could be in Beijing. And he could be, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Right? Buenos Aires. He found a way to be in every place where we are, his bride. Where I teach at school, I mean, just, I count the hall that appears in the next building. I mean, you think, I mean, here's the problem. We just totally take it for granted. Could imagine if Jesus was there in his visible presence. Right? This place would be mine. But he is there in all of him. Am I pointing in the right direction? <laughs> <laughs> and so that's that's a really important reason. And so he's managed to remain 
in such a way that every single human being, practically, some exceptions, suppose you live, I mean, there were for a time some Christians in Japan who didn't have priests for several centuries. And so they wouldn't have had Jesus in the Eucharist because they didn't have a priest. But wherever there's a priest, we can have Jesus Christ here with all of him. All right, but he's not visible. So there's a second reason why he's not visible. And that's also good for us. It gives us the merit, the opportunity to show our love for him by believing in his word, even though we don't see him. All right, so Jesus' presence in the Eucharist enables us to have a merit, and that's the merit of faith. Believing what we can't see and what no microscope or any chemical test can reveal, right? So no matter what kind of test you do on a consecrated host and unconsecrated host, they're not going to differ empirically. Right? But we believe that what's under the one, the consecrated host, is Jesus Christ, and what's under the other, the bread. And that's a hard thing to believe, right? And there are surveys out there that show us a lot of Catholics, tragically, don't believe that, probably because they've never taught it. But that's that, the glory of the Catholic faith, is that Jesus found a way to be present to us. And the, here's what we should say. The logic is spousal love. Right? Jesus came as the bridegroom, John the Baptist. No? John the Baptist, and some of his disciples, don't you care? You know, everybody's flocking to him. And John the Baptist says, I'm the friend of the bridegroom. He said, I rejoice that the bridegroom has the bride. And so we should think of the Eucharist as this expression of Jesus' spousal love. Right? The first thing that a spouse wants to do is dwell with the beloved. Right? And that's, in fact, why, principal reason, why God became man in the first place. Right? So that he could dwell with us as a human being among human beings. In Israel, there was a kind of presence. There was the presence of glory in the Holy of Holies, in the Ark of the Covenant. But it wasn't a substantial presence. In other words, it was a kind of, it was like an apparition. It was a cloud, a cloud of glory to encourage the Israelites to have familiarity with God. But he wasn't there because he didn't, it's not as if he assumed that glory to be his body. But in the incarnation, he assumed a human body to be his body so he could be a human being among human beings. And so it's proper to a bridegroom to want to dwell with the bride. So leaving his bride, he found a way to continue to dwell with us. So that's the first. And so you can see also how, in a way, it was beautifully prepared for in Judaism. Precisely that kind of local presence of his glory prepared Jews for, uh, for the real presence. And except there's a huge difference. In Israel, where was that presence of glory? In how many places? One. Just one. So if you lived in Upper Galilee, you had to make a long journey to the temple to encounter that presence. Right? If you lived in Rome, you had to make a, a sea voyage to encounter that presence. And so, again, the real presence here is such a greater gift 
because it's God made man present here and present in every place where his church is. Of course, right? that means that we appreciate less. So Jews who had to travel, I don't know, 10 days on a ship to get to the temple, they would appreciate that. And we have to just walk across the parking lot, we may be, I'll do that tomorrow. Okay, all right, so that's the, the first reason. But what else is part of spousal love? So we know this from human life. Spousal love um, involves sacrifice. And that's actually its glory, right? The glory of being husband or wife is the fact that spousal love costs a lot, right? Especially like the mother has to get up in the middle of the night and numerous times, et cetera, to, um, all of the things that you have to do out of sacrificial love. I don't know, to provide, to and protect. So Jesus as the bridegroom is the model of sacrificial love. And it's beautifully expressed in Ephesians chapter 5. Usually read it very often, read at weddings. Husbands, love your wives as Jesus loved his bride, the church, and gave himself for her. Right, so Jesus is a bridegroom who sheds all of his blood for his bride. And when Jesus to the Eucharist, the Last Supper, he knew that he was going to shed his blood for his bride the next day. Right? Now, an action like that, an action of heroism by which one gives one's life for another, the problem in human life is those actions happen and then they're done. Right? There's the effect but only the effect. So Jesus knew he was about to do the most heroic act of all human history. And that's his passion, to be nailed to the cross for his bride. And he wanted to give to his bride not only his presence, this is crazy, but it's divinely crazy, but he wanted to give to his bride the very act by which he was going to die for her his passion, so that it would be always present, not just as a distant memory in the church, but that it would be living in his bride every day. Ah. Mere human beings can't do that. Events, right? Some great event by which, my favorite example is Maximilian Kolbe, so he was in a castration camp, and somebody had escaped, and so the SS, what they did was they took 10 people at random to be starved to death in retaliation for the person who had escaped. And so they picked 10 men, and the 10th person broke down crying and said, my wife, my children. And right there, Maximilian Kobe says, stands up, excuse me, I want to die in place of that person. And the miraculous thing was the SS allowed him to do it. And so he was starved to death and died. A long time after, 10 days, I think it took for him to starve to death. But in any case, that was over. And the person for whom he died fell into a depression because he, my goodness, this saint died for me and who am I? But then he, he found purpose. I have to survive so that I can keep alive the memory of that act that he did for me. I, that's the best we can do for a heroic act is keep alive, and he did. He, is, he managed to live through the, until uh, the end of the war, was freed, and he was the one who brought the gifts down at St. Peter's and his beatification. Yeah. 
Right, so that's the best we can do is keep alive the memory of something. All right, Jesus could do something better because he's got it there. So he found a way. So what he was going to do the next day was his sacrifice to his father for his bride. Right, so there are two parts there. It's a sacrifice, first of all, to the father. And it's the one sacrifice of all human history that does what a sacrifice is supposed to do fully. Right, so humanity is always, so this is kind of important to us because we're not used to offering animal sacrifices. But if you lived 2,000 years ago, it would have been totally normal. Every society offered animal sacrifices. And the idea of it was to offer something to God as a token of the offering of the heart. And it would be some kind of sign that we want everything to go back to God because of his glory, because he's made us, but also because we've sinned. And we want to make amends make atonement, expiation for sin. And so we offer something. But the thing that we offer falls short, right? A lamb, a bull, no matter what it is, 10,000 lambs. At the Passover, I'm sorry, look at this here. At the Jewish Passover, do you have an idea how many lambs would have been sacrificed? A lot. Because you have to offer a lamb for every family group. So imagine, I don't know, every two tables, and you've got all of Israel coming to Jerusalem, and every group of, say, 15 would have to have their own lamb. All of those lambs sacrificed in the temple on the afternoon of the 14th of Nisan. That's a lot of lambs, right? Suppose, suppose there were a million people in Israel, and let's suppose half of them came to Jerusalem for the Passover. That's 500,000 people. Each group would say 25. You've got 20,000 lambs sacrificed in all of that blood. All right, doesn't matter how many lambs. Is that going to actually make amends for human sin? Even one sin? No. It's a symbol. Right. What Jesus was going to do the next day was to offer something more pleasing than all human sin, from the murder of Abel to sins far in the future, all put together. You name whatever sin you want to think about, whatever genocide or atrocity or torture, all of that together, Jesus can offer something more pleasing because he was offering his divine life, offered out of love, holding nothing back, accepting all suffering, right? But the key thing is the love. And he was going to do, and that's more pleasing, more good than sin is bad. So that's what he was going to offer the next day. But the problem is, we weren't going to be there. Somebody was going to be there, right? Mary was going to be there, standing at the foot of the cross. And John, and Mary Magdalene, and another Mary. So maybe there were four or five or six disciples there, and the rest were Roman soldiers and hostile spectators. We weren't there. And Jesus wanted to enable us to participate in that event of his offering himself in sacrifice to his father for us, for our, for his bride, he wanted us to be able to join in the offering. Right? On Calvary, Mary did join in the offering. And she joined more than any of us ever will. Because in offering, she offered her son, which was her whole life and her whole heart. Right? So Mary's the model of what it means to participate in Mass. When we go to Mass, that's what we should think about. And tragically, we don't, I don't think. 
We think about it, right? But that's what we should think. We're there, like Mary was present at Calvary for John. And our task is to, first of all, recognize what's going on. Jesus is becoming present, but he's becoming present as the victim for the sins of the world out of love, as a holocaust of love. And he wants us to be able to join in what he did 2,000 years ago when we weren't there. So this is why the church offers mass every day and requires the faithful to be present on Sundays and holy days of obligation. Right? This is really important. It's not just an arbitrary rule right, for us to go to Sunday mass or a holy day of obligation. It's because what's happening is we're given an unbelievable gift or privilege to be able to offer God the Son to God the Father. That, that's essentially what happens in every Mass. And in every Mass, Jesus becomes present on the altar. But how does he become present? First with his body, right? right? First consecrates the body, and then the blood. Right? The, the bread becomes his body, the wine becomes his blood. Um, think of the Passover again. What would happen to those 20,000 lambs? They would be brought to the temple, the throat would be cut, and the priest would take a bowl, and the blood would be poured into that bowl, and the blood would then be poured out on the altar. And that's the immolation of the, of the Paschal lamb. Jesus, 2,000 years ago, was physically immolated. His blood also got poured out right, from his, his wounds, his four wounds, and then it, after he died, from his pierced side. Mass, we don't kill him again. So Jesus doesn't die again. So we're not repeating Calvary. Calvary can't be repeated. So Jesus couldn't, couldn't give us, I don't know, new Calvaries or something like that, that we could be present. And obviously he wouldn't, we wouldn't want that to happen again. So what did he, he managed to make that one event, not a different one, present in every time of how? Because Jesus himself becomes present on the altar in every mass, right? Those words are words of power. This is my body. Right? Who's saying those words? Right? Maybe it's Father John, perhaps. But who's really saying those words? They're said in his person, right? The pronoun changes. Up until that point, Father is speaking in the we of the church. But then the pronoun changes to the I of Christ. This is my body. So we should think that's Christ speaking, and Father has lent to Christ his lips for that moment. Christ's words, so think back. Christ, leper comes to Christ. If you will, you can cure me, right? You can heal me. What does she say? I will be clean. And what happens? Those words cleanse, right? because they're words of power. Just like his words, your sins are forgiven. Do what they say. Right? So Jesus' words are words of power because he's God and man. And therefore, if Jesus says, this is my body, what happens? It becomes. It's the body. Right? So at the Last Supper, he said those words, this is my body. That matzah that he was holding became his body. But not just that. So now, 
because that power that he had to say words of power, he gave that power to every rightly ordained priest in his church throughout the centuries. So, in the Mass, Christ becomes present. But how does he become present? First in his body, and then in his blood. We can't kill him again, and we don't want to. But, he's present, we could say, sacramentally immolated. Because his body and his blood, right, somebody should make an objection here. Isn't all of Christ present? Don't we say, body, blood, soul, and divinity under either speech? That's true. That's true. But nevertheless, those words make present first his body, and then the rest comes with it. Right, so, when, so when the priest says, this is my body, those words make his body present. And today, because Jesus rose, and he's all together, and he can't be separated or killed again, the rest of it comes along too. Right? His blood, his soul, and his divinity. And then the words, this is my blood, they directly make his blood present, and <coughs> his body comes along too, and his soul and his divinity. So there's no new death happening in Mass. But what's happening is Christ comes as, as the victim of Calvary, mystically, mysteriously, and he's able to bring with him the effects and the truth of his, the effects of his offering. I should do a different word. He's able to, so Christ comes on the altar. Right? And what's the first thing that Father says after Christ becomes present? There's a part called the, the anamnesis, and that's we remembering your passion, resurrection, ascension, we offer you Father. Right? So the priest, once Christ becomes present in the consecration, the, the first thing that the church does through the priest is to offer to the Father that victim who's become present, even though he dies no more and he's now glorious. Right? So we're offering today the same victim that was offered 2,000 years ago. There's a difference though, right? The difference is that 2,000 years ago, he was offered in this bloody way, with his blood physically separated. And today we can't physically separate his blood from his body, and so he's sacramentally separated. And so we offer the Father the same victim, but who now can die no more. Alright, so that's the first thing. So we, so we when you think about it, we're offering the same sacrifice as was offered 2,000 years ago. Why? Because we've got the same victim and the same high priest. All right, I'm not the same priest, but we said Jesus Christ is acting through him. And so we've got the same victim and the same priest in every mass as on Calvary. But the victim now is in a better state, all right? The victim is now glorious and can die no more. But we're offering the same victim, all the same, to God the Father. Right? But in an unbloody way. So we're making the same one. And so what that means is that we're able to offer something today, tomorrow, every day, that's more pleasing, that's more good than all human sin put together. Not just that we've done but of the whole world. Right? This is beautifully expressed in the Divine Mercy chapter. Right? We offer to you uh, right? body, blood, soul, and divinity of your dearly beloved Son, Jesus Christ.
Christ, right? And for what? In atonement for our sins and in also for the future. Right? So that's what's happening in every Mass. Okay. And what about the effects? Well, so on Calvary, Jesus did an act with infinite effects. Right? Because on Calvary, Jesus gave a sacrifice that would be at work all through human history. Actually, before that, thousands of years before Jesus lived and became man, already the grace of Calvary was working in the world because God's out of time. And so God knowing this as future, say at the time of Abraham, the very grace of Abraham's faith, right? The grace that Abraham had to believe God and to believe in his promise, where did he get that grace? through the merits of Christ's passion. Right, we today, likewise, every grace that we get, every grace that any human being has ever gotten from, from the, right after the fall till Jesus' second coming comes from that one event of Calvary. So you can see that it has infinite power. But that infinite power needs to be applied to the world today, tomorrow, and every day. Right? How is it principally applied? What's the ordinary part? God can apply that however he wants. But he's got a logic, he's got a plan, and in an ordinary way to do that. And that way is the mass. The mass is the ordinary way that the graces of God are poured out on this world. But the beautiful thing about the Eucharist that's different from other sacraments, other sacraments, you have to receive the sacrament to get the effect. And to get the effect of baptism, you've got to be baptized. It's not enough that somebody else be baptized. To get forgiven in sacrament of penance, you've got to go to confession. It's not good enough that somebody else, right, your brother goes to confession for you. The Eucharist is different, though, because in every Mass that we offer to the Father, graces are poured down on the world for everybody there, for everybody's offering, and in different proportion. More graces for the one who's offering more. In other words, who's, who's participating with their heart and soul. But also grace for those who aren't there, so that they will get there. How else are there conversions in the world and in the church? Right? Every Mass is, in a sense, pouring down. It's offering something first. It's an ascending movement. We're offering to God. And because of that offering, graces are pouring out for, you name it, people in China, people in Africa, people in who otherwise, and who might in no way be aware that that's the source of those graces. And so we're given, so Jesus instituted the Mass also so we could join with him in making that offering of his life that he made 2,000 years ago. And that that would be ever living in his church and be always a source of graces for the whole world. And you can see this just simply if you follow the Eucharistic prayer in the Mass. Who does Father pray for when the Mass is offered? Just kind of little? No, right? It's, it's offered for the Father, for the Bishop of the whole world, for the whole world it's offered. Say for every group of people, the Mass is offered. And that means it benefits. Every Mass benefits all of those people that we've made. Two-thirds of the way through. 
So we are talking about the Eucharist as the sacrament of Christ's spousal love. But we haven't fully, we haven't finished. So spousal love wants to dwell with the beloved first, right? And then spousal love is sacrificial to give oneself for the beloved. But obviously, spousal love also wants to give oneself to the beloved, mutually. Right? That's what marriage is principally about, and it's unity. And so it creates a bond of communion that's unique between husband and wife, a union of mutual self-gift, right? That's total, in which hopefully nothing is held back. All right, Jesus instituted the Eucharist to be that also, right? To be the sacrament of his total self-gift to each one, to each member of his bride, right? So, and there's an order here, right? So first, it's the sacrament of presence by which he dwells with us. Right? And so the, the consecration makes Christ present. Immediately we then offer him to the Father. And so it's sacrificial love offered for the beloved to the Father. And also given to us to join in the offering. And then third, right, and it comes afterwards in time, he, the very victim who is offered to the Father is given to the faithful. And remember the faithful who's rightly disposed to receive him. But you can see why there's a condition there. Right? Because he's giving himself totally to the Father. And so the condition is simply that we likewise give ourselves totally back to him. And that means, so you can see the condition is that we not be preferring ourselves to him. Because then it wouldn't be true. He's giving himself totally to us. And the condition for us to receive him is that we give ourselves back to him. And that means to love him above all things. Right? And that's why there's a condition that we be in a state of grace. Because if I'm in a state of mortal sin, I'm not, it wouldn't be true to say I love him above all things. Right? Because Somebody's in a state of worship only if they know in conscience that something is gravely wrong, right? Their conscience somehow grasps that something is gravely wrong, they know it, and they fully consent to doing it anyway. And that means if I'm doing that, I'm loving that thing that I'm choosing more than the one who speaks through my conscience, right? Who speaks through my conscience. So that's why if we feel our conscience bothering us gravely, that we're, right, we want to take away that obstacle. Right? And that's the reason why you know, St. Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 that we should you know, examine ourselves first before receiving communion right? so that we receive it not then. He says unto judgment, but the meaning of that is simply truthfully, I think. But it's to receive him truthfully as a total self-gift. I have to, in other words, be, to receive him as a as a bridegroom. Right, this is hard for men, and it is. So women have an advantage here. Right, clearly, because I mean it's it's a spousal gift. And so receiving Jesus the bridegroom, yeah, it's easier for women to, women to imagine that. But all of us do it. 
but I have to be in the position of a spouse who loves the bridegroom above all things. All right, I don't have to be doing, that doesn't mean I have to be St. Francis of Assisi or, or Our Lady, but it simply means that I have to put him first, even if I don't put him first as well as I'd like. I know that venial sin isn't an obstacle, in no way, and speak to God for receiving the Lord. But mortal sin is, right? Simply because if I'm putting something before him in great matter, just, he's not my, I'm not loving him of all things, right? That's the, so, um, so this third purpose for which Jesus is to the Eucharist, is to give himself fully to us in all of him. And so what we receive, and again, it's, it's easy to say, but it's impossible to really grasp what we're saying. Right? We say body, blood, soul, and divinity. And to receive Jesus is to re in communion, is to receive his whole humanity, nothing left out. Right? It doesn't look like it, right? It's this one inch and he's six feet tall. Am I receiving all six feet of him? Yes, because we're receiving the whole of him. The whole of him is under every part. So here's the genius of this. Jesus comes to us in this hidden way that I mentioned before, which is good for us because it enables us to have that merit of faith. But it, it's also good for us because it means that everyone can receive the whole of him and he's never used up. Right? If we received him in a visible way, not under... Right? I mean, have you seen the thumb? I'm oh, sorry, no, no. It, it wouldn't work. So he's present in our world under borrowed appearances. The appearances of the bread and wine that were turned into him. But those appearances remain. Thanks be to God, they remain. So he's wholly and entirely under every part of those appearances of bread and wine after the consecration. So it doesn't matter if I receive ten holes or one tiny fragment of a host, I receive the whole Jesus Christ, nothing left out. How long do we have the whole of him? Meaning his so we receive his in receiving me, we receive his humanity. I receive the whole of his humanity. Right? And again, into our bodies. Right? And so again, the conjugal act has a certain analogy to Holy Communion, but Holy Communion is far greater, right? Infinitely greater. Because we receive the whole of it, and we receive the whole of it precisely so that we come away with more of his divinity. Alright, that's weird. So let me see if I can explain that. When we receive Jesus Christ in communion, each one of us receives the whole Jesus Christ, right? So 100 people come down the communion line, hundred people equally receive the whole Jesus Christ and the whole of his humanity and his divinity. But, and by doing that, we have his humanity for a time. Does anybody know how long more or less? How long does it stay, his presence stay in us? 15 minutes. Yeah, we, I don't know, something like that. Right? And it stays in us until our digestive, till our stomach uh, digests it. And it no longer has the appearances of bread and wine. As long as those appearances of red and white remain, he's under them. But when those appearances get changed by our digestive system, he ceases to be present when those appearances get corrupted or changed into us. 
So let's say 10 minutes. We've got the whole of Jesus Christ in us. So we should use that time. Right? So this is why it's good that Father take a little time cleaning the vessels. Yeah. Because it gives us a few minutes to say thank you. Right? Think how ungrateful it would be if we just received Jesus Christ. We don't think about it, and we think about other things, and then he's there for 10 minutes, and we like, pay no attention. Sorry. Yeah. I do this too. Yeah. I mean, we all do it to some degree. But we should, we should make, try it, at least make the resolve to make a good use of that time to tell them that we love them in that time. Because each one of us is a tabernacle for that time. And we're like more. The tabernacle is this deathbed, right? It's a piece of metal. But we're a living tabernacle with Jesus living in us. All right, that last 10 minutes. Is there an effect that goes beyond the 10 minutes? Yes. And that's we grow through receiving his humanity. We grow in sharing in his divinity. Now we're maybe not used to hearing about that. We speak of, but what, what that means is simply we grow in grace. To grow in sanctifying grace is to grow in a share of Christ's own divinity, and that means his capacity, right? So love, God is love. So to share in his divinity is to share in his power to love. And so the Eucharist is the sacrament we said at the beginning of charity, of love, because it's that sacrament instituted to help us to love more, because he's nourishing us with that very, with his divinity, which is love. We don't, so everyone receives that. Everyone who, sorry, let's go back to our community line. 100 people in the community line, 100 people receive Jesus Christ. But let's say, some in that community line are not in a state of grace. What do they receive? They receive the same Jesus Christ, but they won't receive an increase in grace because they're not in a state of grace. To receive an increase in grace, I have to first be in a state of grace because it's, it's, taking something that's alive and making it live more. Right? Does that make sense? Yeah. But we won't all get that same effect because in those hundred people in the community line, no two are going to be equal in desiring Jesus. Some are going to desire him more ardently. I think of Mary Magdalene, right? Imagine if she was on the community line. She would be desiring immensely. And so she would receive the same Jesus as everyone else but she would come away with a greater increase in her capacity to love. All right, did anybody receive better than Mary Magdalene? Yes, who would that have been? Mary. Mary, we don't know how long she lived after Calvary. Let's suppose, I don't know, 20 years. She would have received Eucharist as often as she could, every day if she could, right? She was living with the priest, John. And so we can imagine every day she received her son with a love that we can't even imagine. And every day she would have been fed by the Eucharist with a greater power to love him the next day. And this, of course, is all hidden. No one could see her growing in love in those 20 years. But we know it's, it must be true. And in the last chapter, we'll, we'll see that. And so 
The point being, it makes a difference, therefore, how much love that we bring to coming down the communion line, and how much love we bring to our Thanksgiving after Mass, and how much, also, of what we do outside of Mass we bring to Mass. Right? That's really the most important thing by far. So the beauty of the Eucharist is that, yes, we do it in an hour, right? And it's a ritual action. We come to church on Sunday. But the whole of our life in the week is also coming with us and being put on the altar to be offered. But we should think, well, maybe there are some things on my week that I don't want on that, on that altar. I guess that's why confession's a good thing. But our very effort, right? So I suppose I sound more to say my very difficulties, that my struggle with those difficulties can be put on the altar. And that's a great point, right? Our struggle with them and our desire to be healed of them. Right? That's a spectacular offering. Right? So the whole of our life and gets brought back, right? Of our Christian life, except for sin. But our struggle against it, we want to break. And then, so there's a beautiful kind of alternation. So in the Mass, it starts with Jesus coming down to us. Right? That happens in the consecration. And then immediately we want to offer him and ourselves to the Father. So he comes down and we should think, all right. And here's where a beautiful church can help. Right? It has a vertical dimension. We offer up. But then, after we've offered up, Jesus comes back down to us in the Holy Communion. And so we receive it. And then what should we do? offer ourselves back up better now. Why? Because now we're offering ourselves with him in us. And with him giving us more power to love him. And so this, I like to think of the Eucharistic life. The Christian life ought to be a Eucharistic life in which there's a kind of circle, right? You all, we all know about vicious circles, right? A sin tends to make it easier to sin again, which makes it easier to sin again, etc. But we've got an antidote and that's the Eucharist. And the Eucharistic life is like a vital circle where participating today gives me more strength to live tomorrow. And generally, God won't let us know that we're doing better because what happens is new trials will come up. And that's really good for us, right? Because otherwise, it immediately goes to our head. And so the Eucharist life is a life in which the Lord raises the bar, but he raises the strength that he gives to us, but he hides that from us so that we stay home. And so that vital circle of Eucharistic life. So the, so just to summarize, the Eucharist is source and summit. I don't think it's easy to see now. It's source why? Why is it the source? Jesus. Jesus. It's the source because it's Jesus. It's the source for a second reason. Because it's Calvary made present here today. So it's doubly the source. It's Jesus and it's his sacrifice. Right, why is it the summit? Because everything good in the life of the church and in our own life gets brought to it. We should spirit our right, maybe we forget, but we, it's good if we kind of think of putting it on the altar, putting it on the in the, the offertory is a good opportunity for this. Right? In the offertory where we offer him monetary gifts to the bread and wine. We could think we're putting our life there, right? That week there, our hearts there. Yeah. And so it's the summit because everything except sin is brought to that and offered to him. Right? And so the whole life of the church 
Was it? It's today's same example, the same, right? So, yes. I mean, just think. The lives of the saints, how a saint like John Paul II, he would be constantly bringing all of his efforts, which is touching the close of the whole world, into Mass. Right? That's what made him. So, Mass with John Paul II, I got the privilege of experience this in a gigantic crowd. We lived in, my wife and I lived in Rome for nine years when John Paul II was a pope. And so we would go to Easter Mass and Christmas Mass and other opportunities like that. And you just got this sense that he was offering the whole world. And that's what every Mass is. It's just that we're not as aware of it as St. John Paul II. And so it's the source and the summit in those two ways. And it's, we could say, triply, right? It's the source because of presence, it's the source because of sacrifice, and it's the source because he gives himself fully to us. And then it's the summit because it's that presence that we're offering. It's uh, the summit because we're offering that sacrifice. And then it's the summit because he's giving himself to us so that we can offer ourselves back to him. And questions? I forgot to ask Father the time of Father and the Son. 
So in reality, yes, we're in the in the Eucharist, in Holy Communion. Well, let's say even before that, and it's directly the second person, the Spirit of the Trinity, who's made present the altar, because it's only the second person of the Trinity who was made man. But Jesus becomes present on the altar, filled with the Spirit, because his humanity was filled with the Spirit. And that means that then we're offering this victim filled with the Spirit to the Father, and when we receive communion, we receive the humanity of Christ filled with the Spirit. Right? We said that humanity remains in us for 10 minutes, but what remains after that is a share, I said, maybe too abstractly, in his divinity, but that's the same as saying an increased share of his spirit. So it's actually true that Christ nourishes us in the Eucharist with the spirit, with the Holy Spirit, to abide in us more and to give us the spirit's power to act in the spirit and to live in us. So St. Paul, in his letters, is constantly talking about life in the spirit. Right, as opposed to life in the flesh. Right? And so we're all called to live in the spirit. But we need to be nourished in that. Right? Confirmation gave us the foundation. And we can always call on that. But the Eucharist is nourishing us in the here and now. With the power of the spirit. And John Paul II highlighted this in Ecclesia of the Eucharist. In his encyclical on the Eucharist. There's, I forget what paragraph it is. Where he speaks about how in the Eucharist we, we receive the spirit. More, right? Great. Thank you. Mm -hmm. When I was young, I remember being told, um, you know, if you find an instance or whatever where where you're at mass twice in the same day, you should not receive the Eucharist twice in the same day. Is that correct? And is there a doctrinal reason behind that or anything? So, the, so again, it's, it's something canonical. It's something changeable, right? So this is something that. Uh, isn't set down in stone by uh, when Jesus instituted the Eucharist. And, and so that's something that the church can modify. The way it is right now is that, yes, you can receive a second time if you happen to be participating in a Mass the second time. You can't go a second time to a communion service. But if you happen to be in a second Mass on a Sunday or Holy Day of Obligation or any day, and say it's a funeral Mass and then another Mass, yes, you can receive the in the second time as well, but not a third time. Because we're trying to dictate to God what he ought to do. 
So if we were to have instituted, if it was Peter instead of Jesus who instituted the Eucharist, you would be absolutely right. And it would, we wouldn't expect it to work. But since it was Jesus who instituted it, he wants that to be the case. In other words, he wants us to be able to have that certainty that saying these things with the, right, if we got the right, just exactly what you said, got the right minister, right, right there, the priest over there. We've got the bread and the wine, not, um, not cake, not uh, something else, but the right stuff and the right words with the right intention. Yes, he will come. And that's glorious. That's glorious because that shows us, this is a spectacular question, that shows us precisely the humility of Jesus in the Eucharist. He will come. All right. Holy priest makes sense he would come. But what if you've got a scandal, a scandalous priest, right? And we go, yeah, who knows too much about that? Right? There have been scandalous priests. Nobody would thought it doesn't know that now. And when they were to say, this is my body, what happens? Jesus comes. Judas, right, Judas never celebrated that. But if Judas were to celebrate mass, Jesus would have come. And that's part of the humility of it. And there's, there's a fancy term for this. It's Latin, ex opere operato, which means from the word worked. That means just exactly that, what you said. That you've got the right minister with the right intention, the right matter, right stuff, and the right words. From the work work, Jesus comes. But sanctification doesn't work like that. And that's what I try to emphasize. In other words, we can, yes, Jesus comes present that way. In, but sanctification isn't like magic. We have to be desiring. And this is why I can't counterfeit. Right? In other words, I can't say, oh, I can't pretend I'm in a state of grace. And I'm not. Because it's not working automatically. And the same thing is true of confession, right? It doesn't work automatically. If I'm lying to the priest, my sins are not forgiven. Because it's not like magic from the point of view of us. But it's, yes, he holds nothing back. And he will always come because God is faithful. Right? That's what's so important. That, that's the very idea of a covenant. A covenant is God binds us. I mean, it's again, it seems crazy that God would want to make a covenant with you. I mean, there's a little inequality in this. <laughs> and yet, what's so incredible is that, yes, we're totally unfaithful to that covenant all the time. But he's never unfaithful to that covenant. Right? And that's really what your point is getting at. That's so magnificent. So he comes faithfully every time. Thank you. Thank you so much, Dr. Wilson.